Welcome to Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm a scholar of food, gender, feminist, and tech history, and the author of the book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. This is the fifth episode of the podcast. Today we'll be talking about the cultural outputs of feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, and we'll be focusing primarily on cookbooks. We'll be joined by Dr. Jessica Kenyatta Walker and Dr. Anna Zeta. We will also be joined by archivist Ellis Ng. In previous episodes, we have talked about how feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses in the United States and Canada in the 1970s and 1980s were connected to feminist bookstores, lesbian bars, women's rights organizations, and not to mention the broader network of civil rights, LGBTQ rights, and anti-racist organizations. Bulletin boards in these spaces advertised women, plumbers, and tradespeople. Some of the feminist restaurants and cafes then in the 1970s and 80s, and now also into the 2020s, functioned as bookstores selling the writings of feminist authors. Not only could folks enjoy food and drink, they could consume feminist words. Literature was not the only art that was shared in these spaces. In previous episodes, we have talked about the women's music movement, lesbian and feminist music. Many of these spaces would, and still do, use their walls to feature feminist artists, and some would use their wall space as a rotating gallery. Places such as Wing Cafe in San Diego were specifically designated as feminist cafes and galleries. The feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses from the 1970s to present have also produced their own literature. In addition to founders and workers writing manifestos, editorials, and op-eds, and producing their own materials explaining the activism of the restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, they also released their own cookbooks. Today's episode is going to focus on feminist cookbooks and how cookbooks are useful for better understanding the past. So, first, a bit about feminist restaurants cookbooks. Bloodroot Feminist Restaurant and Bookstore of Bridgeport, Connecticut has released many cookbooks since 1980. The restaurant started in 1977. Over time, these books have gone from vegetarian with a few fish recipes to primarily vegan. In their first cookbook, The Political Palette, published in 1980, they wrote, Feminism is not a part-time attitude for us. It is how we live all day, every day. Our choices in furniture, pictures, the music we play, the books we sell, and the food we cook all reflect and express our feminism. The long introductions in these cookbooks serve to educate readers about how the Bloodroot Collective connected their philosophy of feminism, lesbianism, vegetarianism, and environmentalism. Selma Miriam and Noel Fury of Bloodroot Bloodroot later collaborated with Augusta Yearwood on vegan cookbooks. More recently, Augusta Yearwood, who runs several feminist vegan anarchist cafes and chocolate shops, 
has released her own vegan cookbook. Sweet and Salty came out in 2020 and is full of political information alongside the recipes. The History of Feminist Restaurant and Cafe's cookbooks are also tied to LGBTQ cookbooks. In the fall of 2021, I curated an exhibit called What's the Recipe for a Queer Cookbook? While the physical exhibit is now taken down, you can still check out a digitized version of the exhibit online at thehistoricalcookingproject.com. I've linked to it in the show notes and in the transcript. Feminist Restaurants cookbooks are an important resource for understanding feminist activism alongside feminist periodicals and books. That cookbooks are valuable scholarly resources has already been established. Food studies scholar Mary Nessel argues, recipes are gateways to understanding how people ate and thought about food waste in the past. However, cookbooks provide information beyond food itself. Historical cookbooks give insight into personal life. Culinary historian Barbara Ketchum Whedon we're not related, but Ketchum is in her name, has emphasized this point in her article, Finding Real Life in Cookbooks. She underscores how scholars can use cookbooks to learn about what ingredients were available, the kinds of technologies that people of the past used in their household, and better understand gendered work roles. In cookbooks as primary sources for writing culinary history, or for writing history, culinary historian Elizabeth Driver demonstrates the importance of cookbooks to understanding food culture more generally, a point echoed by cookbook scholar Natalie Cook in Canada's Food History 3. Okay, now we're going to get to one of my favorite quotes about what cookbooks can tell us about the past. Barbara Haber, the former head archivist of the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America of the Radcliffe Institute of Harvard University, when responding to questions about why the Schlesinger has always collected cookbooks, notes that behind that question, there is usually the assumption that a library that chronicles the progress of women's rights ought not to also be collecting books that are a testament to women's traditional role in the kitchen, thought by many feminists to be the epitome of patriarchal oppression. End quote. So Haber here argues that although women's relationship to food in the kitchen has been fraught with tension, it's still an important part of women's history. They're a great source material to understand women's relationship to the history of food, social history, archaeology, folklore, history of agriculture, aquaculture, industry, education, medicine, and publishing from women's perspectives. Cookbooks are also vital for getting at histories of people whose stories might not be available in other places. With cookbooks, yes, we can hear the words of women in ways that might not have been historically captured in other forms. Cookbooks are so important for understanding race, class, gender, and even sexual orientation dynamics, as I argue in my queer cookbook history exhibit. This is made clear in the work by Kimberly D. Nettles Barcelona, Jillian Clark, Courtney Thorson, Jessica Kenyatta Walker, who we're going to be speaking to later, and Psyche Williams-Forson in their piece, Black Women's Food Work as Critical Space. And I've linked to that piece in the show notes and transcript. Scholars have also answered the call of Natalie Cook, Driver, Haber, Ketchum Whedon, and Nestle to build methodologies which integrate a serious inclusion of cookbooks as source material. Catherine Hobbs shows how women's cookbooks articulate the writer's desire to affect meaningful change from within circumscribed space of the kitchen. Folklore scholar Diane Tai emphasizes the memories woven within a cookbook's recipes in Baking as Biography, and I'm going to list a few other books that kind of point to the same importance of cookbooks in understanding history. So we have Sherry 
A&S in Secret Ingredients, Race, Gender, and Class at the Dinner Table. We have Mary Drake McFeely and Can She Break a Cherry Pie, American Women in the Kitchen in the 20th Century. We have Manly Meals and Mom's Home Cooking, Cookbooks and Gender in Modern America, Laura Shannon's A Thousand Years Over a Hot Stove, A History of American Women Told Through Food Recipes and Remembrances. Laura Shapiro wrote Perfection Salad, Women in Food at the Turn of the Century. Megan J. Elias in Food on the Page, Cookbooks and American Culture. Janet Theofano in Eat My Words, Reading Women's Lives Through Cookbooks They Wrote. All of these authors, they all utilize cookbooks as the primary source material to understand women's lives and gender roles. American Studies scholar, Hélène Ledantac Lowry, commenting on Theofano's work, notes that much of the scholarship that relies on cookbooks as source material ends up focusing on the experiences of straight, white, middle-class women's experiences, however. So, hopefully, if you're interested in cookbooks and history, you can dive into some of those resources. And there's a lot of ways to analyze cookbooks, from the ingredients to the formatting to the cover art to the writings throughout. And you can do so to look at different communities beyond white middle-class women's experiences. This brings us to the research of our first guest for today. Dr. Jessica Kenyatta Walker is Assistant Professor of Afro-American and African Studies and Assistant Professor of American Culture at the University of Michigan. Dr. Walker's manuscript, Her Kitchen is the World, Black Women and the Culture of Soul Food, traces the construction of soul food using cookbooks, USDA narrative reports, television, and film. The project conceptualizes soul food as a battleground for Black representation within popular culture that often plays out through representations of Black womenhood and domestic space. Her Kitchen is the World finds that these images often implicate shifting ideologies of citizenship, national belonging, race, nutrition, and gender divisions of labor. Jessica, thank you so much for being here. Can you begin by saying your name, your pronouns, if you wish, and a bit about yourself? Sure. Jessica Kenyatta Walker. I'm an assistant professor in Afro-American and African Studies and American Culture at the University of Michigan. Um, and I love turtles. Amazing. So let's just begin by talking a little bit about your book project, Her Kitchen is the World. For listeners who may not know about your work, can you tell us a bit about the project itself? And for those who aren't as familiar with soul food, can you explain how you define soul food in your work? Sure, yeah. The the work is actually about how different people define that term. It's usually used as a catch-all for African-American cuisine that originates in the U.S. South. Um, but my project is really concerned with how there is a material kind of genealogy for that. There's dishes that we can trace but there's also this mythological genealogy. So there's things that are intangible, like survival or love um, or, or persistence that are a part of the cuisine's narratives. And that's what my project tries to trace. And it's found that um, central to the myth and the material kind of coming together is the Black woman in her kitchen space. That could be everything from domestic science to this kind of notion that women cook alone and very well by themselves um, to how women kind of in the 60s and 70s, when soul food gets termed, are using kitchen spaces and domesticity to talk about 
um, the politics of everyday life for African-Americans. Um, so that's really what my project is about, that myth and material are actually, maybe they're equally as constitutive of a cuisine as we might think of uh, traditional foodstuffs. It's such an exciting project. Can you tell us a little bit about the time period that you're looking at? Sure. The project actually starts in uh, the 1920s in the progressive era, um, and it ends in the contemporary moment, um, more so early 2000s, maybe not right up to the 2020s. Um, so it goes through the post-war period, uh, the 1960s and 70s Black nationalist movements in the United States, and um, the more recent kind of turn to food industry. So what is the place of soul food within a larger global and national food industry? And to look at that broad time period, you have to use a variety of sources and research methods. I'm particularly wondering how you use cookbooks in your scholarship. Yeah, cookbooks are um, really fascinating to me because as someone who wasn't necessarily always really interested in ingredients um, or how they came together or doesn't consider myself necessarily the best cook, I was really fascinated to find that the traditional recipe or how we know it is called the scientific recipe and actually was invented in like the late 1880s, um, which really got me thinking of well, what did people do before that? How did people adopt this new kind of science of domesticity? Um, so I explore a lot of cookbooks that are produced by African-American women that genre bend. So they're using the scientific recipe or not. They're using autobiography, they're using poetry, music, uh, deeply intertextual, they're using historical knowledge. Um, and so they're, they're kind of mixing things up a little bit. Um, and so a lot of my work was actually spurred by or relies on this interpretation of, of a cookbook. Um, and that comes a lot from Black feminist literary criticism and literary production. So these cookbooks were written um, by women who were uh, friends and writing with people like Toni Morrison or Alice Walker. So um, they're taking from people like Zornel Hurston. So she also mixed um, her autobiography with traditional ethnography and with folklore. And so they're really embracing this idea that Black feminists produce things that uh, genre bend that aren't necessarily adhering to um, the traditional criticisms of things, and that that is a reflection of how they're critiquing the world. You know, how they're saying that these aren't, these aren't necessarily boundaries we adhere to. We need to draw from more sources in order to attempt to define what food means to us. So I use them much less as kind of a chronology, um, although I definitely rely on deeply those works who do. Someone like um, Recipes for Respect is a book that understands kind of the first African-American cookbooks as early slave narratives, especially the forewords. And I much more look at them as uh, kind of like choreography notes or like a musical score. So it's not just the order I'm looking for, but um, to understand how the author is actually directing people. How do they move through space? What are the intangibles? Or as uh, Vernon McGrosner, who is someone I study deeply, says the vibes, are the vibes right? Mm -hmm. um, what abilities must you have to navigate the space according to the direction? Um, what are the appliances? What is the spatial design? So things like that really got me, I think, interested more broadly in, in the connection, connection between cookbooks and space. Um, so that's really uh, much more how I use them. I don't necessarily parse out, um, you know, is there a lot of meat in this? Is there a lot of vegetables in mm -hmm. this? Um, choreography is a good way to put it. Um, and also understand them as no marketing 
marketing materials with an audience and a goal in mind is, is important. Is there a certain part of the cookbook that you approach first when it is so genre blending? Because there's, it seems like there's so many different parts to look at. Yeah. What is kind of your first place that you start? The four words are really, really important, um, no matter the length, uh, because they usually draw on some form of nostalgia. And it's also where their author is actually like defending their expertise. And that doesn't mean they're saying, you know, I went to Cordon Bleu, I studied in France, I studied in here. They're actually saying, you know, I cooked at the knees of my grandmother. So again, we have this recurring theme of, of Black women in their kitchen, passing down knowledge. Um, or I fed this person and that person, or, you know, I'm authentically this, or at a different period, stepping away from that and saying, you know, I can, I don't just cook uh, from the American South. I know recipes from Italy. I've been to Italy uh, myself. Um, and so I really, I think, uh, scrutinize the four words for this kind of authenticity argument, not to judge right or wrong, but just to say how fascinating is what narratives people bring up. Um, especially when it comes to soul food to, um, to support that. Right. And what you're just saying just then about how the forwards give us a lot of insight into kind of connections between generations and ideas mm -hmm. of nationality and mm -hmm. connection. What else can cookbooks tell us about race, class, gender, national belonging, and citizenship? Yeah, so much, I think. Um, and, and my work is kind of approaching this notion of um, domestic science. Um, so when you kind of ask, like, what is one of the parts of a cookbook I look at? Another part that kind of comes up is um, in the 40s and 50s is nutritional standards or conversion charts that come in the front of cookbooks for some, um, some cookbooks uh, written by African-American women. Um, so this is one of those kind of really fascinating and subtle ways that cases for belonging have shown up in, in tradition um, of African-American women's cookbooks. So those are meant to signal, hey, you know, there's a federal standard. We get it. I'm on board with it. I can cook with it and through it. Um, my kitchen is a laboratory. Um, my kitchen is not primitive. Um, and so the modern kitchen, which gets really refined in the 1920s and then in the 1950s, uses that language of laboratory cleanliness. Um, the notion that the efficiency of your kitchen reflected your moral belonging in the nation was really it's a clear class standard. Um, and so that's one of the, I think, key ways that those discussions around belonging, race, class, and citizenship show up in cookbooks. Um, and they're very, again, sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're very forward. So the National Council of Negro Women, which is one of the oldest organizations for African-American women, entrepreneurs, businesswomen, or women interested in um, you know, Christianity or the faith of those traditions, um, started by Mary McLeod Bethune, who was famously uh, the first Black female millionaire. Um, you know, they're recounting not Methune-like, you know, learning from her mother's feet how to cook traditional foods like collard greens or, um, you know, uh, stews with salt pork in them. They're talking about lamb and mint and jelly. That's her favorite food. Or, you know, they're, they're drawing from the diaspora, uh, the Caribbean, um, West Africa, in the foods that they're talking about. And there's about, I think, two or three editions of that. And so through time you see, okay, this is actually about respectability and arguing for, a, you know, um, 
a comfort within a class position. And so it's also that that tool. And so belonging can look like really radical different things because those sets of cookbooks are counter to the cookbooks of the 1960s and 70s that define soul food. They're trying to do a little bit of op- the opposite. They were basically saying that stuff, that working class stuff that, sh- that you think is cheap, that you call slave food, that you're trying to distance yourself from, just as tasty, just as technical. Um, and is and that authenticity is also a re- rebuke of domestic science and all these really deeply institutionalized ways of living that seek to erase or literally whitewash um, these traditional methods. Um, and so there's a whole bunch that you can, I think, figure out through, um, if you scrutinize cookbooks in that way, if you understand them as a little bit of a ploy, they're not exactly um, what they seem to be, right? No one's ever going to really tell you how to completely, um, I think, exhaustively uh, recreate a cuisine, right? It's really more about the persona, the history, the narrative, and the nostalgia that they want you to um, experience or buy into. Um, and so I think, you know, the the range of what we can learn um, especially from African-American women's cookbooks, is really fascinating. Um, and that's mostly because they also started um, as texts that were kind of ripped off. So white women kind of ripping off um, the recipes and techniques of their domestic servants, who were most likely African-American, um, translating their recipes with this kind of broken English and weird accented, um, devalued, but often you know, to serve to authenticate that this is the real deal, this is the real source. Um, and that's where you start. And so by the time you get to the 1960s, I think there's just really this kind of back and forth, right, with that as a genre um, and a real attention to how Black women are represented through the category of cookbooks. So you use cookbooks in such a rich way. Can you tell us when you started first using cookbooks in your scholarship? When was the first time you wanted to look at a cookbook to tell you a bit more about this history? I really love this question because my research actually started with a cookbook um, or what some might call a cookbook, mm-hmm. but um, Verda Mae Grosvenor's Travel Notes of a Geechee Girl or Vibration Cooking Travel Notes of a Geechee Girl. Um, I was doing a project in undergrad around African-American food and African-American language um, I wanted to look into how they were kind of similar, like um, the what we call signifying games in African-American language or that vernacular and how people were using food um, to talk about people metaphorically and literally were interesting to me. Um, and a professor suggested this text, Vibration Cooking. Um, and I read the first page and I was just enamored. So it's written as a, almost like a, a rap or a, a script um, it is, as I said before, deeply intertextual. The recipes are sometimes given in a scientific way with the measurements, but usually not. And they're always accompanied by some kind of autobiographical story or some kind of insight. Um, and so that set me on the path of kind of understanding this uh, deeply textured and rich world of African American food ways and how people were talking and thinking about it. And it turns out there's kind of similar themes in film and TV and scholarship that it's highly divisive in terms of of class, that it has within it 
the kind of hopes and dreams of migration, um, including connections to diaspora, um, which were highly emphasized. Um, and so that literally became, I think, my grad school paper. Um, I'm, I'm writing an article on her now in, in the book she wrote before this. Um, and so it really, it took me, took me by surprise, but I've been um, uh, really a, a disciple of hers ever since. She sadly has passed, but um, one of the anecdotes in there was about uh, her shopping for collard greens, and um, she's in line at the grocery store, and a white woman says, how do you people cook those? So she says, you know, you just eat them raw, toss them with some dressing, and it's good to go. So she's doing this whole signifying thing, you know, it's an inedible for most, I would assume, way to eat that, but responding to the you people um, and responding to that kind of dehumanization, which is also um, met with or comes with, the dehumanization comes with a like weird appreciation and fascination. And that that is essentially the story of Black food in America. It is often consumed, often um, uh, kind of desired, but always kind of like the dirty little secret, um, which we could say about a lot of I think black cultural products. Um, and so again, I wasn't drawn to cookbooks necessarily, but that one in particular kind of laid out a really fascinating world. And it's actually modeled after Alice B. Tolkis's work a little bit. Um, Grossman was reading that and it's like, I think I could do that. Um, she wasn't using the scientific recipe. She's focusing on intangibles. Like I said, hospitality, music, um, and, uh, these really fascinating uh, kind of biographical asides that really uh, captured my attention. That's amazing. And I had the pleasure of first hearing your work on Edna Lewis and Berta Mae Grosner at the Oxford Food Symposium back in 2019. And it was such a fabulous paper. So it's exciting to continue to hear about these ongoing pieces of research on this topic. What are you currently working on? And has have cookbooks continued to be a big part of that work as well? Yeah, so I'm currently really interested in this, this term called euthenics, which is the twin term of eugenics, which most people might be familiar with. This idea of kind of clarifying the gene pool by, you know, sterilization, um, just breeding the goods, uh, the, good, the good people of a population. So euthenics was the nutritional twin of that. So how can we optimize the body and populations to perform at their maximum ability. Um, when I understood this term, and I, I first kind of read it in I think an early domestic science manual or something like that, I was, I'm like, this is everywhere. We 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 use this language today. Uh, I think of things like superfoods or anything that kind of can enhance um, your cognitive abilities. The notion that our bodies are machines that need the proper fuel. Um, animates a lot of how we understand our relationship to food um, and to land, I think, thereby. So euthenics and race um, are, are hand in hand. So there are people um, of a certain class of, during the progressive era who take this on as obviously the, the key to unlock potential for um, the Black race. Um, there are other people who might shoo-shoo it at a little at a point of time and say that that's um, you know that's not for us. We like our traditions. Um, but I was, I think, 
fascinated by how longstanding the, the kind of undercurrents of those narratives are when we think about nutrition and just the interesting relationship between race and nutrition. So that's going to be my second, um, second book um, is about how that this notion of euthenics actually animates a lot of what happens in the latter part of, um, of the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, and even the 80s to some extent, which is that soul food needs to regain its health back, that it needs to clean, clean itself. Um, the fascinating thing about eugenics is that it was really advocated for by the early inventors of domestic science, which were mostly white women, Ellen Richards, um, Harriet, uh, Catherine Beecher, Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister, um, and it, it was thought to be the thing that could erase social inequality. Essentially, if we can, and it's, it's, it's kind of an altruistic approach, like if we can give everyone the, the right amount of protein that they need in a day, um, we're good to go. Kids can go to school, everyone can work where they need to work. Um, the problem with that, which is the current actually problem of how we conceptualize um, food inequality, um, is that racial inequality um, is, is actually kind of fundamental um, to um, social difference, to how we experience social difference. Um, but that was something that they thought they could kind of plow through. And they had, at certain times, were scratching their heads. They're like, we don't know why these immigrants don't like this porridge. It's delicious. It's the right amount of protein. Um, and so there's this, this really interesting echo of those arguments with, well, if we just put a farmer's market in this community or if we educate people about nutrition, um, then that would certainly help with the, these disparities, um, failing to see things like housing discrimination um, that, that actually you know, place people in certain neighborhoods, um, the labor trap, um, and this, this kind of weird echo of past and present. So that's what um, I'm really uh, interested in uh, for the second, second book, Race and Euphenics. I'm really excited about reading that project. It sounds amazing. Me too. for folks who are listening to you talk about your work and are getting excited and inspired to jump into their own historical research using cookbooks what approach would you recommend as a starting point so it helps uh to get into the spatial navigation of the cookbook for my work at least i think that folks should spend more time about thinking about um cookbooks as like a script to a performance. I think that's a really interesting way to, to approach it. Um, I look at it, like I said, as a marketed good, so not an exact reflection of a culture, but um, something that is directed, refined, and curated, deeply curated. Um, and I, I think thinking deeply about working now with uh, social media and the you know very popular videos of just hands cooking food, <laughs> um, those things that are happening on our timelines, blogs, allrecipes.com, which I go to a lot. I don't I don't know if we should think of these as devalued cookbooks. This is something as I'm thinking about, like it's just you know cookbooks light, but I do wonder um, how they operate differently or together or apart um, in, in the contemporary moment. So that's I think something people should think through, um, and also thinking about just like any other aspect of publishing, you know, there's the big publishers, but there's also the kind of little publishers. And so being aware that this is something that I've um, recently um, not discovered, but have 
have started rating used bookshops for is these um, cookbook uh, kind of pamphlets or fundraisers from churches or even businesses and corporations, especially in the post-war movement. So if you sold oil or if you sold corn or if you sold refrigerators, you might've been including a cookbook or a pamphlet within that product. Um, and so if you think about that kind of expansive way about how do we access recipes and what what's the stuff surrounding the recipe, um, that's information that we're getting as well. We don't just hone in on the goods. We're also thinking, looking at the advertisements on that blog or the advertisements in these pamphlets. Um, so I think understanding it as, as part of that um, ecology of messaging is really important. Well, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Where can people find out more about your work? You could find my profile on the University of Michigan's website uh, under the American Culture Department or the Afro-American and African Studies Department. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to read your forthcoming projects. Thank you for inviting me. It was a blast. Cookbooks are useful to a wide range of scholars and have been critical to food studies. Our next guest, Dr. Anna Zeta, is an associate professor of history at Virginia Tech. She is also the founding director of the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences Food Studies Program. She studies food as a way of understanding environmental change, dynamic cultural practices, consumer behavior, technology, health, and justice. Her first book, which I highly recommend, Canned, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry, was published by the University of California Press in 2018. That book won a James Beard Media Award in 2019. She co-edited a collection of essays called Acquired Taste, stories about the origins of modern food that came out with MIT Press last year. And she has a forthcoming book called U.S. History and 15 Foods, which will be out in January from Bloomsbury Press. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Zeta about the role of cookbooks in a food studies program and the importance of cookbooks in understanding food history. Anna, thank you so much for coming. Can you please say your name, your pronouns, if you wish, and a bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm happy to be here. My name is Anna Zeta, and I use she, her pronouns. And I um, am both the an associate professor in history at Virginia Tech and also the director of a new food studies program um, housed in the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences at Virginia Tech. Um, and to think of myself as a food and environmental historian um, and thinking a lot these days about sort of program building in those spaces as well. Amazing. And how have cookbooks been useful to your own research? Yeah, well, in many ways. And um, I think, you know, just today I taught a class uh, not only about cookbooks, but about primary sources in food history and thinking about what it is that these records allow us to understand about the past and cookbooks in particular, um, the role that they play. My first book, Canned, um, is about the history of the canning industry. Um, and really looking at the way that canned foods sort of emerge and show up and are used and described in cookbooks beginning in the later 19th century into the present, seeing them sort of go, go from being mentioned but requiring a real pitch for why anyone might want to use them 
to being, you know, everywhere in cookbooks and just assumed that everyone would use these and have them on hand to now being only in certain kinds of cookbooks that are not sort of pitched uh, to audiences who think of cooking from scratch as, as the goal um, really quickly gives us a snapshot of the use and um, cultural associations that people have had with canned foods. Um, and then actually one particular cookbook that I uh, mentioned in that first book, Canned, uh, became the foundation of an essay that I developed in um, an edited volume, Acquired Tastes, that I co-edited that came out last year because there was a, a brief mention of this um, cookbook called The Story of Canning and Recipes in 1910 by Marion Harland, who I knew was kind of a, a leading domestic advisor and authority in that space. And I got interested in why it was published by the National Canners Association. And I got interested in the question of why um, this leading authority was writing something on behalf of this trade organization and unpacking that particular cookbook led me into the space of that essay. And can you give us a little bit of a sneak preview? What did you find? Yes. Um, yeah, her story is fascinating. Um, I describe in the essay a lot about her change of heart, as I call it, in that in the later later 19th century, her, her biggest book, um, or one of them, was in 1872. And in that kind of writing, she really maligns canned food. She does not like them. She discourages her um, readers from using them. And then by 1910, she's written an entire cookbook that's using canned foods, that's promoting them. And so I tried to sort of trace as much as I could what happened. Why was it that she went from saying really gross things about these canned foods to um, to promoting them and how that tracked with the broader um, role of food industry and in kind of co-opting domestic science and the home economics movement and creating this really tight association that went on to, to reshape the acceptance of canned foods and the tastes among the broad audience because these people they trusted, the tastemakers, the influencers at the time, um, got on board for reasons that were both in some ways genuine. The quality of the canned food had improved and in some ways, you know, uh, a reality of the position of that many of these women occupied that they sort of had to follow the money and the influence that was growing among the canners. That's so exciting. And for listeners, if you haven't read Canned yet, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. And I love all the different ways that you tie in medical histories and food histories, questions of botulism, questions of taste. It's a great book. Thank you, so. Alex. <laughs> Thank you. And I'll, I'll give a quick plug um, in my the book that I just finished writing that comes out in February. Um, it's called U.S. History and 15 Foods. And in that book, too, I mean, there are too many cookbooks to even name, but trying to tell the story of 15 different foods across all of U.S. history required a similar kind of attention to um, when foods emerge, how they're treated, who wants them, what kind of audiences are assumed to have access to these foods um, in that space as well. That's awesome. And this is going a bit off book, but for when you analyze the cookbooks, are you looking primarily at the ingredients then if you're seeing how the ingredients are changing over time? Or do you have another approach to looking at cookbooks? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly interested in the ingredients, um, both the presence of them and the kind of explanations or lack of explanations around what it is and how you might prepare it or acquire it. Um, but certainly also the kind of implicit values that are embedded in the in the steps of the production, the assumed, you know, assumed equipment that a kitchen might have, 
um, as well as assumptions about who's making these foods, why, whether, you know, um, whether there's a kind of moralism around this being a food that people have already been making and should be making more of or less of. So, you know, a lot of it is reading between the lines to think about the position of the cookbook author and who she thinks or they think their audience is and how, um, how the influence of the cookbook might reshape the practices in the home. Awesome. And, you know, you started off talking about a bit of your administrative work as well as being the founding director of the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences Food Studies program at Virginia Tech. And I'm wondering what food studies means to you. Yeah, it's a big and good question and one I feel like I'm continuing to define and redefine as I go. Um, I was hired here into this position to help develop the dimensions of especially the humanities and also the social sciences, the studies of food in those areas to complement the existing strengths at a land grant institution like um, Virginia Tech to amplify, you know, there's all of this long legacy of work in agriculture and food science and nutrition. Um, and many people in those fields are thinking about those applications, but um, to sort of suggest that food studies can both be a space that brings together those sometimes disparate fields, both the more traditional applied sciences with kind of newer social history or humanities reflections on food, and to amplify that latter dimension to say that food has to be understood not only through the lenses of kind of the practical dimensions of production, but also how those products then get taken up, used, used to code people, tied to identities, tied to religion and ethnicity and gender and class and race and all of the things that shape our, um, our identities. And so food studies, I think, as a field at its best, is able to um, bring all of those fields into conversation and show all the practitioners that there is something to be learned from um, seeing food from different perspectives. Um, and then, you know, institutionally, I think building a program has required a lot of thinking about um, all the different constituents of the university, from students to staff and our partners across campus in community engage and community engagement and our and local farmers and food producers and faculty and thinking about how those um, interconnections can also be made stronger and how food offers a sort of platform sometimes for linking conversations not just across discipline but across um, kind of relationship uh, to the university and the community as well. And in that answer, you kind of hinted towards the fact that food studies can look different at different institutions. And I'm wondering how cookbooks are part of the food studies program at Virginia Tech. Yeah, we um, because food studies here, we are housed in the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences. And as I mentioned, we're really trying to amplify the sort of humanities dimensions of food studies. And so um, cookbooks and books and archives more broadly have certainly been a real foundation for something that we're bringing to the space of food studies. It's quite different from a lab or a nutritional conversation or a farm that these kind of historical and cultural records that cookbooks can provide um, really offer a, a foundation and a view into a field, a part of the field of food studies that is, that is different. Um, so across We've been developing new courses. We have 10 to 12 new courses that we've that different teams of faculty have been developing over the last few years. And I would say at least 
half of them are using cookbooks and cookbooks from our own archival collections and our libraries here as primary sources. Um, we've also thought in a more playful way, we've used cookbooks to um, kind of lure in audiences when we're like tabling at a majors fair or an event, um, having cookbook giveaways or having historical cookbooks on the table for people to, to look at, to sort of take an object that they might be familiar with in a present day way and think about how these same objects have been um, or versions of the of cookbooks have been produced for, you know, for so long and that just as our cookbooks today are lenses into modern um, culture and food, so too can historical cookbooks offer these lenses that sometimes spark curiosity in spaces that people might not have thought of before. Um, and yeah, we have, we have a long tradition at Virginia Tech of um, that we have a large culinary history collection that's been here for the last 20 plus years. Um, I think it's underutilized and underknown. So I certainly encourage people to check out um, our, our culinary history collections, both the um, Peacock Harper collection, which is sort of our older and more established collection and our newer archives tied to the food timeline um, that we, we, the libraries kind of, um, own, but that we are trying to develop new opportunities and um, engagement with as part of the food studies program. My next question has to do with the newer collection that you've acquired. And so listeners might know that I've written a bit about the food history timeline's own history on the historical cooking project in 2018, when I interviewed the late creator Lynn Oliver's friend and fellow reference librarian, Sarah Weissman, and later wrote about the food timeline in my first book, Engage in Public Scholarship. So I'm very excited about the food history timeline. And you've worked in partnership with Virginia Tech's Kira Dietz, who's the Assistant Director of Special Collections and University Archives as part of your work as director. I know that you've now acquired this food history timeline and the Associate Cookbook Collection. Could you speak a bit about why the acquisition, the food history timeline is so important to Virginia Tech and how you've worked in partnership with the university library special collections and archives to develop student internships and engagement around the archives. And along with that, how are student interns using these materials? Yeah. Um, yes, it's exciting to talk about the food timeline. I feel like people who know about it, uh, you know, know what an amazing resource it is and um, share our excitement about having brought it here to Virginia Tech. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, I'll briefly tell the story of its acquisition because I think it's a, an interesting it felt like for me a very valuable early affirmation of the food studies work that we were doing. Um, and for any listeners who don't know it, it's foodtimeline.org is the website and you can um, go see this amazing um, cache of um, historical records around the histories of all foods that Lynn Olver created uh, over many decades of work. And um, after she died, her, her colleague and her, family had been trying to find a new home for someone to maintain and upkeep uh, the website. And uh, the summer of 2020, which is when I was um, accepted this position and was moving here, um, my colleague, a colleague of mine here um, and I both saw the Eater article that said, who will save the food timeline? And immediately I had this feeling of like, I want it to be us. Um, and so I wrote to Kira, who's our um, assistant director of special collections and said, is there any chance this might work? And she, you know, given that the libraries here already had such support for culinary history, there was interest. And so we put together a proposal that we submitted to um, Lynn Olver's um, husband. And um, 
I think they, they received something like 70 applications or different people or institutions that wanted to take the food timeline. And as I understand it, one of there are a couple of reasons that they chose us, but one was certainly the the strength, the practical um, library experience and digital scholarship that's happening. But the other was the fact that this food studies program was developing and that there would be this concrete uh, programmatic element to help bring engagement with the resources, that it wouldn't just be kind of an inert um, object or website or series of books or collection, but instead there would be ongoing classes and internships and projects that put this, you know, Lynn's legacy and the amazing collection to use. So that's the side of it that I've really been trying to develop. Um, we did launch a, our first food studies internship program last year and have since had um, students working both in archives and we've also had communications interns and other pr programs. But the uh, archives intern has been working in the libraries both to um, go through the physical collection that we acquired over 2000 books that we've been trying to um, enter into the catalog, make searchable. And then, you know, the food timeline itself has um, lots of, it shows its age in different ways. So fixing broken links, writing new entries, just based on the student's own interests, something that a food that they're interested in, that whether it's regional or otherwise that they don't see represented there um, and trying to keep it alive and also we've been taking, running surveys and trying to get um, broad kind of global user feedback on what people find useful about the food timeline and how we can maintain those elements of it while also uh, modernizing it in ways that are respectful to the origin of the resource um, and continuing to build it into something that can live on as one of the kind of premier food history um, repositories on online. That's all so exciting. Yeah. And as we're on the topic of students and cookbooks and archives, can you speak to some of the challenges and rewards of incorporating cookbooks into the course syllabi? And maybe though you've kind of already touched on it into the food studies program more broadly. Yeah. Um, well, I, I teach a class called U.S. Food History that um, I've taught a number of times. But this semester, actually, for the first time, I decided to bring some historical cooking into the classroom, um, which can be difficult sometimes, I think, for us on the humanities side of things because we're not well equipped for like just the logistics of, you know, science departments have labs and lab fees to cover their um, equipment and materials. And every time I've thought about doing something like this, it's always felt limited by um, access to kitchen space, access to funds to purchase ingredients and these kinds of things. But I decided I want to try it this year, so I'm definitely thinking about this question a lot. Um, we will be borrowing the, the cooking labs of our kind of nutrition program, the Human Nutrition Food and Exercise Program, who are sharing their space with us for two class period, or two weeks of the semester, and we'll be drawing on um, Mary Randolph's 1823, The Virginia Housewife, which is sort of considered one of the earliest American, U.S. American cookbooks um, that captures much of both uh, Virginia area cooking as well as insights into early American cooking. So I'll be guiding students and choosing a few recipes from that book that we also read in context and then preparing them. So I'm still thinking a little bit about what that will be. Um, and then we're also planning to do a kind of 1950s cooking week where we dig through various like company cookbooks, Jell-O and Campbell's and other um, branded cookbooks and think about who was producing these and how the industry was invested in um, 
creating demand for their products through these cookbooks and letting students choose a couple of um, 1950s delicacies to uh, make in our cooking lab. So that definitely feels like a space where I'm exploring both the rewards. The students are very excited already, as I've introduced just this week, the idea of this, like they're all buzzing about the idea that in a history class, they're going to get to to cook and taste. Um, And also it's quite challenging already just to think about how do I fit this into the syllabus? How do we create space for this? How do I take my hour and 15 minute block and actually you know, produce food in that time and clean up afterward. And, um, it, you know, it requires a kind of flexibility in that sense. Um, but even just, just reading cookbooks or engaging with them in, um, a less hands-on way, I think, um, they can have huge rewards in terms of helping students imagine the process and labor of producing food, of reading a recipe, of acquiring ingredients, of the implicit knowledge and um, explicit directions that are aren't present in cookbooks. And I think even for students who don't cook from cookbooks now, they at least have an idea of what that looks like, whether it's from food cooking shows or otherwise, and contrasting those very concrete um, sources that they have that they can compare to from the present to the past. Um, Yeah, but I think they also, like any primary source, can be quite challenging for students to um, interpret. Um, They require a lot of scaffolding and framing um, to make sometimes quite sketchy um, directions and and ingredients come alive. Um, So, yeah, I would say those are some of the the big ideas in the the syllabus and in classes. Um, In the food studies program more broadly, I think, we're thinking a lot more about how to build community around food studies. Um, given that we began in 2020 in the our early days of the pandemic, we've certainly been restricted in some ways by that hands-on and community-based element of the food studies program. But I'm thinking about ways to use cookbooks and recipes and community cookbooks and the idea of sharing recipes in community as um, some of the central platforms to bringing us together around shared interests. I'm so excited for your students. That's going to be amazing to be able to cook together. It's it's such a challenge, as you're saying, in terms of the space and the logistics to actually do it together in class. I've had students bring in dishes to class that they've made from old cookbooks, but it's really nice that they can actually share that experience. So it's yeah. amazing. And I'm hoping it will also, speaking of community, that it will also just kind of uh, soften and, you know, make when we come back to the classroom and have discussions that some that having challenged through the process of cooking together will also kind of lubricate the in-class experience as well. And this is more of a question about your own favorites. Is there a particular cookbook within the collection that stands out to you or one that really is a favorite of yours? Yeah. Well, I remember when I came here for my interview, um, I went and, and viewed the existing collections, not the food. Ti- we had, didn't yet have the food timeline, but the Peacock Harper collections with Kira. And it was definitely like one of the biggest selling points because she just kept pulling all of these pamphlets and manuals off the shelves and saying, oh, look at this and look at this. And um, we have specialties both in children's cookbooks and kids sort of cooking collection because of one donor who, for who had collected 
in that area and also cocktail history, which is one of Kira's specialties and interests. Um, so seeing lots of the kind of guidance and pamphlets around that. Um, we also have some of our kind of oldest pieces. We have a 1693 um, pamphlet from London, um, a pocket companion containing things necessary to be known by all that values their health and happiness is the name of that one um, that was made by a doctor for a good housewife is how it's described. And so that those kind of oldest um, documents and records are, are really interesting to me, um, as well as the ones that maybe connect more, more of my researches in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And um, we have um, a first edition of the Virginia Housewife um, by Mary Randolph that I mentioned. Um, there's also a, a student in my class last semester did research on the history of vegetarianism, and we found a... Um, a vegetarian cookbook from the Unity Inn, um, which was in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a 1923 cookbook at the time. This was one of the largest vegetarian cafeterias in the world. Um, and seeing that in the middle of Kansas in 1923, that there was this kind of vegetarian hub that both came out of kind of a religious um, movement, like a lot of the vegetarian uh, upswell of the time that was very tied to moral um, moral guidance as well, but reading the kind of, you know, various nut loafs and products that were made in the middle of Kansas, uh, or sorry, actually, I think it's in Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri is where the, um, the Unity Inn was. Um, but thinking about, you know, these kinds of very contemporary questions in light of the cookbooks that we can see in the collection. Well, this is all so exciting. And I hope listeners rush to the special collections and archives page to see what other materials are available. And thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun to talk. While you can start by looking through cookbooks you might have at home, there are many resources available for accessing historical cookbooks. The Internet Archive has digitized thousands of cookbooks. There are also archives and special collections that are often open to the public that have cookbooks and recipe collections. Also, some of these archives and special collections have also digitized some of their own collection and even placed it on their own websites or the Internet Archive. This brings us to our next guest, Ellis Lee Ng. Ellis Ng is a knowledge and information professional and an educator with experience working as both a librarian and an archivist and with different materials, including historical cookbooks and culinary archives. She is keenly interested in furthering fields of critical librarianship and critical archival practice. Her work in these areas has focused on explicating how foundational professional practices embody the various processes, ideologies, and relationships of power that compromise European colonization. Ellis is a settler born in the state of Massachusetts on the traditional territory of the Wampanoag Nation and is now living and working in the city of Montreal on the traditional territory of Ganyangahaga. Thank you so much for being here. Can you start by saying your name, your pronouns, and a bit about yourself? With pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Ellis Ng. My pronouns are she and her. Um, to tell you a little bit about myself, um, 
I am a uh, library and archives slash information slash knowledge professional. Uh, I've worked in a, a few different areas, um, including dedicated time working with cookbooks, uh, our topic for today, obviously. Um, I was born and raised on uh, traditional Wampanoag territory in what is referred to as the state of Massachusetts, and I now live and work um, on unceded traditional Kanikahaga territory uh, in the city of Montreal. And I'm joining you today from Massachusetts. Amazing. Thank you so much. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about cookbooks as a resource for research. How do you see cookbooks as a resource for research? So much, so much to say to that. Um, there's just so much diversity of um, usage and potential use for cookbooks. Um, it's hard just to scratch the surface, but um, I think, you know, there's so many different types of cookbooks and I think they all have a myriad of potential. So, you know, there's community cookbooks drawn up by different types of communities and they show community in action, how people and particularly women um, relate to and support one another. Uh, there's also commercial cookbooks, um, co uh, cookbooks that were kind of produced by the manufacturers of certain kind of food adjacent technologies like microwaves, um, and also cookbooks associated with certain ingredients like gelatin, so many cookbooks devoted to gelatin during the 20th century. Um, and these, I think, have so much research potential in terms of uh, technology and how it's been incorporated into households over time. Um, and there's also more kind of household guides that include recipes and have that kind of cookbook function, but also go beyond that. Um, that would have been intended, you know, in the 19th century for a housemaid and then going forwards in time would have been more explicitly intended for the, quote, housewife. And these can show us what a household might have looked like, what it sounded like, what it smelled like. And these are details that are really rich and really difficult to glean otherwise, especially going back in time, because firsthand accounts of households are, you know, vanishingly rare, especially um, in particular kind of demographics. Uh, so cookbooks can give this kind of rich picture of what a household might have been like for various people in it. Um, and so there's just a huge diversity um, of cookbooks and likewise a huge diversity of potential research that you could do using cookbooks. So there's a huge diversity of cookbooks, a huge potential of research, but I think on a much more fundamental level, um, there's two big questions that I think cookbooks, especially historical cookbooks, the same way that anything from the past um, can kind of fulfill the same function. There's two questions that I often ask myself how did we get here and where do we go from here? And I think cookbooks, like so many artifacts from the past, can help us answer those questions. And so I have to admit, for me personally, something that's on my mind a lot um, these days, and I'm sure till the day I die, is the climate crisis. And so if I can just share two really small examples of how a cookbook might help us answer those questions of how did we get here and where did we where do we go from here in that context of the climate crisis? Um, a cookbook that I spent time with relatively recently is a cookbook published in 1924. Um, it's 500 Tested Recipes, which was a cookbook published by the Women's Institute of Stansted, Quebec. Um, and at the beginning of the book, there's a small chapter that gives a history of Stansted, the town. Um, and 
it has this one line that really stood out to me. The line is this. It talks about the, the early settlers, the early European settlers, and their challenges. And it says that, quote, sometimes crops failed and recourse was made to beech nuts, groundnuts, greens, etc. for food. And to me, this connects directly with so much of the scholarship and knowledge that's been built up around the impact of agriculture in the context of the climate crisis and the insistence on early European settlers trying to replicate European-style agriculture and capitalism in North America. And so I think it's just a very small line from this one book. But to me, it really connects to these broader ideas around how did we get here? How did we get into this climate crisis? And given that agriculture has such a huge part in that, I think this small book can kind of help us explore that idea. Likewise, the question, where do we go from here? I look at the myriad of cookbooks that were published during the First and Second World Wars, and these were all about rallying around the idea of making sacrifices for the greater good. Um, often they're called uh, ration cookbooks, so cookbooks produced um, with rationing of food in mind. So how do you make meals that you would have been used to when there is rationing going on because of the war? And again, I think of modern scholarship, modern knowledge that's been built up around diets that we can move towards that will help alleviate the climate crisis, moving back towards more local food sources. And so looking at the resilience that is put across in these books and people making do and making these sacrifices, again, I think it it kind of gives me a little bit of hope for the future that the same could happen again. So I think those two questions of how did we get here and where do we go from here cookbooks absolutely can help us answer those questions in so many ways. That's so fantastic and so wonderful to hear about those specific cookbooks in particular. Can you tell us a bit more about your past work with cookbooks in archival and special collections and rare book spaces? Sure thing. So I previously worked as a liaison librarian within the Rare Books and Special Collections Library at McGill University. Um, and so there I was responsible for preserving and promoting a collection of around 3,000 cookbooks, uh, mostly dating from the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, as well as related archival collections made up mostly of unpublished material. Um, I also was part of a really big project to build an online archive housing a full run of The Beaver magazine, which, uh, if you're not familiar with The Beaver magazine, started out as a kind of circular for Hudson's Bay Company employees in the 1920s, but morphed into a popular history magazine and published and still publishes various pieces about cooking and historical foodways. So those are kind of my, my main interactions with uh, cookbooks, so truly uh, historical cookbooks in particular. What are some of the ways that you saw cookbooks as useful for elucidating the past, especially within this archival context? Do any projects in particular come to mind? Yeah, this is a great question. So I truly feel really uh, privileged and lucky to have just been um, privy to all manner of really interesting research uh, into cookbooks and kind of cooking related uh, archival collections as well. Um, and so I found it particularly rewarding um, working with different researchers associated with the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies, uh, of which, of course, you are a key part, Alex, at McGill University. Um, and so there's a few different projects that kind of came immediately to mind that I just thought really uh, 
were fascinating. So research around the idea of authenticity and cultural appropriation as presented in cookbooks. So I know one particular cookbook um, that someone looked at was the South African cookbook, which was published by Reader's Digest in the 1980s. Uh, this is one of many cookbooks produced for a predominantly white mass market, and it has what I would call a very loud silence in terms of an absence of acknowledgement around the history and contributions of indigenous African people to what is now referred to as South African cooking. And so um, working with researchers, kind of looking at those ideas of how different voices are silenced within a cookbook and how different voices are elevated, uh, I, I found really, really fascinating and rewarding to kind of uh, support. Similarly, um, there's been some really uh, fascinating analysis looking at cookbooks published mostly for the benefit of cooks working in British households in India prior to its independence. So, I mean, the, the history of curry and its relationship to uh, British imperialism is a huge school of thought and fascinating. But again, you can kind of get at these micro histories of that broader uh, theme through cookbooks. So through specific cookbooks intended for that particular market. Um, those projects I found just uh, yeah, truly, truly absorbing. And also community cookbooks um, and how they incorporate information, for example, aimed at supporting people with uh, lower levels of numeracy or financial literacy. So community cookbooks that contain advice around how to spend money wisely and how to convert different measurements with a, a view of efficiency uh, in the kitchen. So in other words, it's kind of a look at how a community supports its own members and how care is exerted within the community. Um, so these are all kind of really, I think, fascinating ways of approaching cookbooks. But also something that I got to see, and I, I've seen quite a bit, which I just find kind of touching as a human, is cookbooks also uh, excite people because I've seen people who have connected with their own family histories and their own cultural histories um, through and their own identities through cookbooks. So that moment where they say, oh, this is like something my grandmother used to make, and then perhaps they try to replicate it, and it kind of creates this kinship or solidifies this kinship. Um, you know, I know that's not an experience everybody has uh, or could relate to, but it's certainly something that I, I've seen um, play out. And it's, it's a really kind of nice thing to see sometimes, this idea that um, people can connect with their own past, not necessarily the kind of broader past. Yeah, I really love that moment of excitement that I've oftentimes felt myself in archives looking at old cookbooks or that I've seen students experience when looking at archives and cookbooks. And I think that really brings forward a great point about how this can make aspects of history more accessible to different audiences as well. And when focusing on food history, folks often focus on historians, right? They're thinking about like, how are historians using these resources? But I'm wondering if you can speak a bit more about the role of archivists in cookbook history. Sure. So that's a really good question. And um, it, it may be slightly controversial in some circles, but I'm going to lump archivists and librarians together in answering this, because I think for the purposes of this question, um, our kind of function is similar enough that that's okay. Though, of course, there are uh, distinctions between these two professions. Um, but so, yeah, so this question of what is the role of archivists uh, in cookbook history, it's 
This is not a metaphor I feel comfortable with, and it's definitely one that is kind of increasingly problematized within the profession, but archivists have been referred to as the handmaidens of history. And mm -hmm. I think this says a lot. Um, we have uh, traditionally been viewed, partly through our own you know, self-constructed professional identity, as kind of passive um, participants in history. But our, our job um, in broad strokes is to facilitate discovery through our professional activities. And this is not a magical process. You know, the, the material that uh, historians use to do their research does not materialize. You know, it, it, it is, the discovery of that material is facilitated through archivists and librarians and the activities we undertake, such as acquisition, cataloging, and description. Um, and this is partly why you'll find archivists and librarians um, collectively losing their mind every time there's an article that gets published on the theme of historian discovers amazing artifact in dusty archive. Uh, it's not always the case. Certainly we have uh, our own uh, foibles, which I will get into, but um, it's often the case that this amazing discovery uh, was contingent on the labor of an archivist or a librarian. So making sure that that material was physically preserved. So we physically take care of objects, um, but we also make them f discoverable intellectually by describing them and placing them within um, discovery systems like library and archive catalogs so that they are there to be used. Um, but we also shape the narrative. So I think we're going to talk about this um, in a little bit more detail later on, but uh, truly um, the work of historians and the work in archivists are kind of flip sides of the same coin um, in terms of, you know, how uh, how material is discovered by historian depends on how the archivist or the librarian has decided to make that material findable. So um, we have a very strong um, relationship with historians, but traditionally we have tried to present ourselves as being invisible, which uh, again, I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, but there's definitely um, some extremely problematic aspects to that invisibility. And so if a listener were interested in visiting an archive special collections or rare books room, you know, they're hearing us talk about these materials on the podcast and they think, wow, wouldn't that be great to actually experience that? What process would you recommend that they undertake? And I say this with a bit of an asterisk because not every archive is the same. Yes, that's an important asterisk and an awesome question. Um, so uh, my, my first thing would be to say do it like I encourage you I mean obviously I'm going to say that because I am the person who would uh, likely be greeting you but do it do uh, take advantage of these resources um, but you're right it is, it's an important distinction every archive is different um, and so there is some general advice that I would give to anybody who would be interested in this um, so the first thing is to you know see what you can find out in advance um, my second piece of advice is get ready to slow down because doing primary source uh, research, working in an archives or special collections library is much slower than you may expect. There's no control F on a 19th century uh, diary that you're holding in your hands. Not yet anyways. And so things move slowly. And so um, you often need to kind of have a bit of an idea in advance of what it is that you might be looking for. Um, so spend some time on the website, spend some time doing a bit of research to see what's there in advance. Um, but a separate piece of advice that I want to give, which um, I think is, is really important, is 
this is going to sound a bit silly at first, but pack a snack, pack some extra water. There's a good chance you'll have to kind of leave the, the reading room to actually enjoy these things. You'll have to step outside perhaps. But spending time with primary sources and in these spaces can be emotionally draining and it can be mentally exhausting. Um, some of the research I mentioned earlier, this idea of looking at silences as they exist in cookbooks. If that silence relates to your own identity in particular, that can be a really harrowing experience. Um, the contents of the material can be harrowing, but so can the information accompanying it and just the environment itself. You know, a lot of rare books and archives are set up in a university uh, campus. And so, you know, this isn't uh, necessarily a comfortable, phys physically comfortable space. And so, I think having a snack, having some extra water, having a picture of your cat on your phone that you can go to when you reach that level of like, wow, my emotions are really starting to drain me, um, can be a really important thing. So uh, my advice is to take care of yourself when you're um, in these places, because that is the case. Um, I think I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but also just in a practical sense, like I say, knowing what you're looking for um, in a broad sense is important, um, particularly because the labor that goes on in a library and archives uh, workplaces is a bit different from other types of libraries in the sense that because things are unique and one-off, everything associated with them is a bit slower. So there may not be as detailed a description. Um, you may need to kind of uh, do some triangulation and thinking about what it is that you're looking for and how that squares with the existing description. Um, but also you need to just um, be prepared for the fact that uh, as unique objects, they can take longer to physically compile. So again, patience is really important, I think. Uh, and that's definitely something I would uh, recommend undertaking is just a process of preparing yourself for that slowness and try to do as much ahead of time as you can. And you've already spoken a bit just then about what the experience can be like in going to an archive. But I think sometimes people also have other kinds of concerns about the idea of handling rare materials or very old materials. And there's a lot of fear kind of around, am I going to have to wear gloves? What, what about how do I hold the object? Um, I know, again, every archive is a bit different, um, but can you speak a little bit more about some of those like kind of practical aspects of what the experience can be like in addition to the emotional aspects and the kind of self-care aspects? With pleasure. I think that's such a great question. Um, so, like you say, yeah, I, I truly believe there is definitely an ethics of care required in libraries and archives, and I think that setting expectations is a huge part of that. And so, yes, honestly, these can be intimidating spaces. They're often within a university campus, which itself can be a daunting environment. Um, you will find that these spaces are typically more surveilled than other types of libraries. Um, this is uh, very much... Uh, a result of the fact that the objects that are housed in these libraries have a higher financial value attached to them than things you might find in other types of libraries. But um, regardless of the reasons for why they're more surveilled, they are more surveilled. Um, you may be asked to provide a piece of identity or even a summary of your intentions and what it is that you're going to be doing with the material. Um, personally, I find these practices problematic, but they are commonplace, and so I think they, they should reasonably be expected. Um, 
there's also a very good chance that the space will be cold. So again, uh, going back maybe a bit, pack a sweater. Uh, books and paper are generally happier at a temperature that people are not very happy at, and books and paper get the priority in these spaces. So you might be very cold. Um, you asked about gloves. This is a, a hot button issue. And here I want to give a shout out to uh, one of my awesome uh, Rare Books uh, colleagues um, based in the U.S., Ali Elvis. Um, they wrote a really great blog post a few years ago called No Love for White Gloves, which is an explanation as to why gloves are not considered best practice, except in very specific situations, which usually is photographs. If you're handling photographs, you might need to put on a pair of gloves. But by and large, gloves are not appropriate, um, especially when looking at uh, cookbooks. Um, you have a loss of dexterity when you're wearing gloves. Um, unless you have a glove that has been molded to your individual hand, um, it's imminently likely that it won't fit you very well. And that loss of dexterity can cause far more damage um, than whatever it is that's on your fingers. Um, the fibers of the gloves can also cause damage and lift pieces um, of the page off the page. So it can actually degrade the book again more than your hand would. So my kind of very, very uh, like 30 second crash course in um, proper handling and hands and all things hands would be wash your hands and dry your hands before you go in. Um, if you like me are kind of a naturally sweaty handed person, that's fine. Just every uh, maybe few hours, wash your hand, dry your hands. Um, and in terms of handling, uh, truly, this is, again, something that archivists and librarians are here to help you learn how to do. So part of our job is to help people learn how to handle a book in a way that will uh, keep it uh, safe for posterity. But generally speaking, um, books like people have a spine, and the spine is a very important part of our health, and it's a very important part of a book's health. So um, you'll find there's sometimes specialist equipment that will help you uh, hold a book so that the spine is kept happy, but you can also use your hand to keep a book happy. So the worst thing you can do for a book is open it completely flat when you get that kind of spine and you can almost hear it cracking sometimes. So you want to cradle books. And a lot of cookbooks that were produced in the 20th century for the mass market, um, they weren't built to last. They are, a lot of them are ephemeral. You know, rare books libraries and special collections libraries preserve ephemera, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. You know, these things weren't meant to last and yet we are wanting to preserve them for historical research. So they are very fragile. Um, but I think that that, again, is part of what a librarian and archivist is there to help you with, is to learn how to kind of handle these things. Um, and of course, digitization is a really, really valuable way of removing some of these like physical hands from an object. So a lot of rare books and special collections libraries will take requests for digitization. Um, some of them might put more conditions on it than others in terms of like what the purpose of the digitization is. But it's always a good question to ask um, what the options are because um, that can really help um, keep the, the physical object um, safe, which isn't to say that there isn't a lot of digital preservation that would then need to be done. Um, but in terms of just physically holding a book, which I know can be kind of a daunting experience, certainly I, I get daunted sometimes holding particular books. So I would just um, encourage everybody to ask questions about handling, you know, ask to have the, that modeled if you're not sure how to hold something. Um, but but don't worry too much. It's there for you to use. And that's, I think, the, the number one thing to remember. 
Definitely. I agree too about how important it is around asking questions. I don't think in a lot of archives and special collections that they assume that everyone coming in knows exactly how to do everything in perfect practice. And because of the diversity of archives, each one has some of its own practices. So if you are going to an archive and you're nervous about something, hopefully the archivists have made it a space in which you feel welcome to ask these questions. And also with this kind of theme of asking questions, some of that happens in advance of visits to archives. So as Alice was talking about, right, looking through archives websites to see what materials they have, sometimes you have to request materials in advance. And sometimes you do this by looking through these things called finding aids or written descriptions also on archival websites. Now, I know that you've done a lot of work on theorizing some of these written descriptions and the kind of metadata that comes with these descriptions. Can you explain what metadata is and how it's not exactly neutral and what we can learn about race, class, gender, and colonialism from metadata? Can past metadata and archival entries be something that we study? And to make this even a bigger question, I know it's already a lot, but how might this look when searching an archive or rare book collections catalog of cookbooks? That is, yeah, it's a big question, but it's such a good question or collection of questions. Um, so first things, just in terms of explaining what metadata is. So very broadly speaking, metadata is the information about material that is held in archives and in libraries. So it's information about an archival collection or information about a book. And this is information that is created by archivists and librarians. Um, my particular interest is in descriptive metadata, which is kind of broadly speaking, um, answering the question of what is this object about? Um, and in studying descriptive metadata and its evolution over time and how um, it's developed and how it continues to develop and where it's kind of come from, um, my broad thesis as an information professional is that traditional librarianship and archival practice is an embodiment of European colonization and all of the patriarchy uh, that's a part of that. Um, Processes like describing material and creating this descriptive metadata, these are dynamic processes and things are changing truly, but the foundational principles of these disciplines were very much centered around the preservation of some narratives and the active exclusion of others. Um, there's also the fact that as individual people, archivists and librarians are imbued with their own biases and ways of knowing. And this absolutely plays out in metadata. So if I can go back to my example about the climate crisis, which is again something on my brain these days, um, I think about how I, as an individual, studied uh, humanities as an undergraduate. I have not taken a science class since I think I was 15 years old and math probably even younger. And that ignorance around science puts me at a disadvantage. Um, if I want to activate um, a, a book or an archival collection that relates to science and I'm not able to communicate, if I don't know the words that scientists might use to find that material, they're not gonna be able to find it. So 
we all have our own biases and ways of knowing the world. Um, that's one really specific example, just in terms of like my own educational limitations and how that might affect my activities as a librarian and archivist. Um, but there's also much more broader things to say around this. I mean, just the fact that textual records are, you know, essentially the, the primary thing you will find in an archive in a library, that in and of itself is a reflection of a bias that um, is against uh, cultures where the written record is not the, the primary form of memory keeping. So at every level, um, metadata is imbued with biases, and there's no escaping that. I mean, it's a human activity, but it's, it's much more insidious within the archives and libraries world. And that's because we have a history of trying to make our labor invisible. We want to project our uh, practices as kind of this objective reflection of the world. So for example, Library of Congress subject headings are one of the primary ways in which um, library and archive collections are classified. So these are subject headings that are assigned to different objects that purport to say what it is about. But these subject headings, um, there, there's so much that's been said and written about their kind of limitations and the fact that they're US centric um, and what that means for researchers. And in a cooking context, um, I was super, super excited that um, I would be sharing the bill today with uh, Dr. Jessica Kenyatta Walker because uh, she contributed a chapter to a book that contains um, a chapter written by Gretchen Hoffman, which I highly, highly recommend to anybody who's interested in um, the role of metadata and what librarians and archivists do and its impact. Um, so Gretchen Hoffman's chapter in that same book, uh, which is called Dis uh, the Deceitful Pork Chop, I hope I'm getting that right, um, uh, Gretchen Hoffman wrote, what is the difference between soul food and southern cooking, the classification of cookbooks in American libraries? Her chapter is about how Library of Congress subject headings um, and the related classification system um, is imbued with uh, biases. So for example, up until relatively recently, soul food was designated as a synonym for African American cooking. And what Gretchen Hoffman explains is how these are not synonymous terms. There are differences, important differences, between these two culinary traditions. Likewise, she points out that Creole cooking, for a very long time, was classified as American cooking, despite the fact that Creole cooking has a global tradition um, far outside of the US. And the quote that uh, from this chapter that I really think resonates um, is when Gretchen Hoffman says, these standards have the power to provide access to library materials, but they also have the power to limit access. So what she's talking about here is these standards that are universal um, to a great extent because Library of Congress subject headings are used to classify books all over the world. And I think she does such a great job of exploring how in this specific example of soul food and cookbooks that um, explore soul food, limit access to those people who uh, would want to study that, would want to connect with that tradition. Um, and so it's, it's just a really uh, great encapsulation of how, for example, synonymizing soul food with African-American cooking um, is highly problematic and just leaves so much um, work for the researcher to do in tracking down relevant information. 
Um, and I also just wanted to shout out this chapter because, again, if anybody's interested in ideas around critical library theory and critical archival theory that tries to redress some of these issues I'm talking about, if you go to CritLib, which is a shortened version of critical librarianship, so it's C-R-I-T-L-I-B, Dot org. Uh, it's a fantastic website, um, and one thing that you'll find there is um, PDF transcripts of uh, Twitter chats that have uh, happened on a recurring basis where critical librarianship folks have gotten together, and it's kind of a book group, basically, on Twitter. And um, back in 2018, I believe, there was a session based on this chapter. And so you can find um, basically a conversation amongst primarily librarians and archivists engaging with this chapter, talking about Library of Congress subject headings and their, its limitations. Um, and there's a huge world of advocacy um, relating to Library of Congress subject headings. Um, it's a dynamic thing, the creation of these subject headings. And I think um, that, to me, is really heartening progress, the fact that these are now acknowledged as dynamic processes. Because in the past, I think the problem was these were presented as just kind of like objective structures that objectively represented the world. But that's not true. Um, that's really not true. These are very much uh, subjective constructions. And I think acknowledging that is the first step to kind of um, making them more helpful to researchers who are at a disadvantage when they're trying to research something that um, because of, you know, just differing biases, different ways of knowing the world uh, isn't findable to them. Wow, what an amazing overview of such a complicated topic. Alice, this has been so amazing and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Where can folks find out more about your work or follow you? Uh, well, I'd be really happy, yeah, if anybody wants to get in touch, I'd be uh, very happy to do so. Um, I'm not a super active Twitter user, um, but I'm very happy for people to uh, connect with me there and send me a message if they have uh, questions, comments, complaints, anything like that. My handle is just my name. Uh, it's Ellis Lee Ng, so it's E-L-I-S-L-E-E-I-N-G, uh, just at Twitter. So you can find me there. Um, I, I tend to lurk, but um, I try to check my messages. So yeah, if folks want to connect with me there, that would be awesome. Wonderful. And we'll pop that handle also in the show notes and transcript. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you making space for someone who is not a, uh, you know, cookery historian or uh, expert on cookbooks as such, but uh, I'm, I'm just really happy that you invited me to the table. Thank you, Alex. Thank you to our guests this week. In our next episode, we will discuss generational differences between the feminist restaurants and cafes of the 1970s until today. Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a Food and Queer History podcast, will continue next week. Please follow the podcast to be notified of new updates. All transcripts are available at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. My book, Ingredients for Revolution, a History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses, is coming out fall 2022 from Concordia University Press. You can receive 20% off pre-orders with the discount code KETCHEM20. I've included a link in the show notes and transcript. An open access version will also be released a bit later.
Thank you to my co-producer, Sadie Couture, for your editing assistance. Thank you to Sarah Nandy for proofreading the transcripts. I also want to thank Tyler Antoine for making the music for this podcast. Thank you also to Shark for the Insight Grant, which supports making my scholarship available in more accessible forms. And of course, thank you all for listening. We can't wait to see you again next week. <laughs>